So hello everyone and welcome to this bonus episode of TI Talks where we're going to introduce you to the Tech Inform team and we're all going to discuss our 2024 tech trend predictions. I've got joined with me today our editor James Pierce. Hi Ricky, how are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. A little bit under the weather but I'll be fine. Uh, our deputy editor Anne-Marie Corbin. Hi there. And our glamorous reporter Nicole Delonde. Hello. I said it right, right? Bonjour, should I say? We're going French. <laughs> so yeah, we're just going to go through our 2024 tech predictions. I guess we can start things off with um, Nicole. You had some some interesting stuff you wanted to mention about elections. Oh, yes. Next year is going to be the biggest year for elections since they began. Uh, Two billion people across 50 countries are expected to vote next year, including the US, India, the EU and the UK is expected to call in elections. Uh, So I was a bit worried about deep fakes. It's already a bit of an issue this year in Turkey. The opposition leader accused Russia of uh, publishing deep fakes of him. Meta has provided rules for deep fakes in ads uh, that are AI generated, but uh, unfortunately there aren't any official legal rules against users posting them. What kind of effect has that already had this this year? Uh, Just a lot of online controversy. It's kind of hard to, you know, differentiate disinformation of like what's a real video and what's not. It was one of Joe Biden, wasn't there, that did the rounds where it was kind of a deep fake of Joe Biden, the US president, talking, and everyone was saying that he'd said something really controversial and then turns out it was just completely fake content. And I think Nicole's right, it's with new technology, especially with AI and stuff coming through, that makes it much easier for people to create deep fakes. And the importance of all of the elections coming up we're in a really vulnerable position where people's trust in politics is especially low anyway and people's trust in the media is also really low um say in the front of a bunch of journalists nobody trusts us guys i'm afraid Uh, you can always trust tech informed of course but um the fact that people don't trust the media and then there's this potential opportunity for people to create fake media and, and spread it quite easily through social media platforms means that it's a really scary time when it comes to deep fakes. Yeah, I mean, it can cause, we've written about how deep fakes may cause genocide in certain unstable African countries. Uh, like we saw how quickly Rwanda disintegrated in the 90s, um, thanks to like a, a radio propaganda station. But that's going to be so much more quick and do so much more damage with deep fakes spread over social media. Um, the, another thing that I would point out election-wise is it's election day in Taiwan on the 13th of January, um, which produces about 60% of the world's semiconductors and over 90% of the world's most advanced ones. Um, America's a big stakeholder in Taiwan. All of it, Most of its labs are currently based in Taiwan, although it is trying to build some on homegrown soil. Now, there are two political parties. Um, to simplify it a lot, like there's one pro-independence party and another that leans more towards China. At the moment, the pro-independence party is in power, but it's very neck and neck as to who gets in next. There are repercussions either way. So if the pro-independence party um, stays in power, there are missiles pointing towards the Taiwanese Straits and the Chinese have been known to conduct military exercises around election time. A blockade would be very damaging 
um, if China was to implement something like that. I think there's a, a statistic that a blockade of microchips could see disruption to over $2 trillion worth of economic activity if that happens. Hopefully, like none of this will happen, but it's worth keeping an eye out. Yeah, it kind of leans into the greater thing about the political aspect as well that we all need to be aware of, even though we're a tech publication. You know, elections and new power generates new policy, and that means that has a big effect on, on the tech world. I mean, if you take the US election, obviously it looks like it's probably going to be Donald Trump against Joe Biden again. Donald Trump said that he's not particularly keen on green policies, doesn't really believe in climate change. And that means there may be a revocation of, say, you know, last time he was in power, he revoked the, uh, pulled out of the Paris Climate Treaty. If that was to happen again, then that sets back a lot of the green... Um, the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, and yeah, but that's it. It'll have an effect on the green lobby and green tech. It can have an effect on some of the things like the Inflation Reduction Act that Biden implemented that is driving growth in the American tech sector. Um, and all of these things have a knock-on effect. Similarly, in the UK, um, whether the Conservative Party retains power or whether Labour come in, Labour promised to invest $28 billion into green tech. You know, there's a lot of things that will swing based on those elections. So I think it's a great point, Nicole, like how important that's going to be next year. And and whether it's the cybersecurity element or its policy, it's going to be such a dominant thread as to what we're talking about all year. Those are all really good points. Um, I wonder, Nicole, what are your personal predictions of like how, how it's all going to fall out? Well, I guess also green tech, I'm expecting some more of that. Um, hopefully, it's with the UK and the US, as James is saying, it will go positively. But uh, at least in Europe, it's expected to be positive. Uh, green tech, and actually energy and carbon saw the most amount of VC investment uh, this year. And it also saw the most amount of new talent. So I expect there to be a lot more green tech next year, considering. Yeah, I mean, well, we, when I spoke to, to James Murray from Business Green, he definitely had the same kind of inclination that there would be a lot more investment from from governments um, uh, and politicians into to green green tech and investing in green innovations. So I guess we can look forward to that in the next year. I think there's a there's a big gap between all these companies that are doing things and the bigger firms. So you've got lots. Most people that seem to be experimenting with green tech are startups. And then you've got the big firms that are committed to their SDG goals. But I don't see much marrying up yet. So my prediction for next year would be you're going to just see more startups partnering with bigger companies to try and get them to reduce their carbon footprint. So you think 2024 is the year of the green startup? It's the year of a collaboration between green startups and big enterprises. You heard it here first, guys. <laughs> Invest while you can. Um, Anne-Marie, what were you going to talk to us about some developments in, in quantum? Um, yes. Uh, we'll start to see some industry use cases, I think, making headlines in terms of quantum computing um, in 2024. Uh, in this last month, we've had a raft of quantum announcements, not least IBM's unveiling of its thousand qubit plus quantum computer called Heron. 
Um, the big guys like IBM and Amazon and Google uh, have been focusing on producing fault-tolerant computers that can solve problems which classical computers have been unable to do so far. There's still a long way to go, and there's a lot of what they call noise in the system. Uh, but meanwhile, the big question is that, you know, people just ask me kind of on a day-to-day level is, well, what do we need quantum for? What can it do that a supercomputer or AI can't already help us solve? And it is a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. The technology is still developing, but in order to invest resources that it needs to to solve problems, uh, they need to sort of come up with some, like, big use cases. Which is why, a bit like in climate tech, you're starting to see the big guys team up with those companies that are not afraid to move fast and break things, startups. This is where you're starting to see a lot of government and private equity funding going towards sort of startups experimenting with quantum use cases. Quantum's power lies in its ability to run many calculations at once, meaning it's particularly suited to problems that require simulating scenarios with many different variables. So you've got companies like Spanish startup Multiverse Computing that are starting to team up with financial investors to look at how best they can maximize investment portfolios. And in industries like Big Pharma, you've got companies like Quibit Pharmaceuticals that are using quantum to create digital twins for drug molecules. Future vaccines could be created in days rather than in months. Um, Again, this is all sandpit stuff, um, but we're likely to see a lot more of it next year, I think. I think what's interesting when it comes to the enterprise market is how where are enterprises with that? with quantum they're obviously not adopting it because we're still in that early stage but we we ran a news story um just in last week where it was kind of a survey and there was a high level um of enterprises saying that they're just not even prepared 61 percent of businesses i think it was said that they're not prepared for the security implications of quantum i think whenever we see these kind of surveys businesses are saying oh we're really excited by the opportunities but we also don't know whether we're prepared enough do you think the industry's done enough to kind of educate um, businesses yet, Amory? No. And when I was at IBM headquarters earlier this year talking to one of its distinguished engineers, he pretty much admitted that there needs to be an education job, but it can't just come from the manufacturers like IBM. It's got to come from industry bodies. It, You know, it's a whole ecosystem. And people just need to get together more and educate enterprises and industries and universities about what quantum can do is it worth just getting everybody to watch (laughs) (laughs) ant-man i haven't seen that so yeah maybe i've seen it twice and i have to admit i'm still no expert in quantum mechanics or computers a different type of quantum anyway but (laughs) nicole did you want to weigh in at all well, when I was at Slush, uh, which is a big startup conference a couple of weeks ago, the floor was just covered in quantum computing startups and uh, seemed really exciting. And the state of European tech report also uh, stated that there was more investment going into it. So I would say it's quite exciting. Also for medical advancement, similarly to Amory Corbyn, I also spoke of it with Algorithmic, which uses quantum to for medical advancements as well. There's quite a lot of stuff happening sort of in like medical advancement stuff. You, you mentioned that in your in your email as well, didn't you? Yes. Well, health tech and AI, first of all, before we jump into quantum, there's still a lot of AI 
uh, which is where we were inevitably going to start talking about. <laughs> We've just been a lot of um, excitement around it this year and companies and big pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer. Yes, they're using AI for their clinical data. Um, and so they're all starting this year, but we're maybe hoping to see more of their fruits next year on what the clinical data and the research that's being accelerated by AI will see. I think health tech is always one of the ones that excites me most when we cover it because it just seems so cutting edge, but you can also straight away see the benefits. Like when I was working on the digital twin report, looking at digital twins of the heart that people have been doing, and I know we've written about that before on the website, um, and just the kind of idea of, of people doctors training using um, modern technology to kind of learn more about the human body and anatomy before they actually go into action or what Nicole's saying about using getting better data from health. Um, obviously, there's also sometimes concerns around that data, as we've seen with the recent contract between the NHS and Palantir, which I think you wrote a lot on that, Marie. Uh, yeah, there's privacy concerns and um, the fact that, um, you know, most of their work previously has been for defence contracts. And um, it had a contract in the US, didn't it, to do with um, keeping, tracking down immigrants that had illegally come into America. It's all very controversial. And the guy behind Palantir is um, a huge Silicon Valley player and Republican supporter. So James, on the subject of Silicon Valley, let's move on to your subject about Apple. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I go back a few years ago um, when I was in a previous role and I went to one of the first launches of a VR headset. It was a Samsung mobile phone launch at Mobile World Congress and they hid um, virtual reality headsets underneath everybody's seats and then you got to try to put them on at one point. But they used the phone inside the headset and everyone was saying that VR, we were about to go into a VR and AR revolution, and it never really took off. But I think next year is going to be a really, really important year for what's known as extended reality, because Apple are due to launch their new headset, the Apple Vision. And the thing about Apple is whenever they enter a market, because they've got such a large fund base, um, such a large following, inevitably it adds a kind of lift to that market. It happened with the Apple Watch. Sales of wearables went up massively. And they very much focus this on businesses. Uh, they announced it in June of this year. And um, the kind of price of it is it starts at $3,500. So it's not really aimed at your average consumer. But the whole purpose of it is to kind of really push into into extended reality, whether that be virtual reality and um, kind of training videos and stuff like that, or whether it be augmented reality so you can see things in front of you and, and kind of have them boosted with more information. The headset looks like it's going to be really good because it's an Apple product. But we've seen this before. We've seen kind of false dawns, as I said, in 2017 and again in 2019 for the metaverse and and, and even in 2021 when Mark Zuckerberg rebranded um, Facebook as Meta, everybody was saying how that was going to be the start of the metaverse, but it never really grew the way that everyone expected or were predicting. So I'm going to put it out there as a skeptic of XR and stuff previously, somebody who's been very skeptical, I think next year is a make or break year. Are you talking about consumer or 
well, I mean, Enterprise. I mean, I mean, Enterprise is going to be the driver. Consumers aren't going to buy it at three and a half grand each. Oh, some will, but not many. Apple always starts with the geeks, and then it kind of filters down, and then, and then before you know, it, like we've all got their tech. Speak for yourself, Henry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm with Ricky on this, but you're right. But I think, I, I think initially, if they're pricing it that, that's the cheapest one. So there, it goes up from three and a half grand. That's a lot of money for your average consumer. There will be consumers who buy it. My brother is an Apple nut. I have no doubt that he will end up buying one of these at some point. But for the most people, I don't think that'll be the case. I think it'll be in the businesses. Do you just think it's training videos? No, I think training videos are one of the their use cases that we'll see. So Magic, Magic Leap's got a similar thing, hasn't it? That pivoted into the enterprise market when they realized there was like just no market for consumers. And they sort of focused on pharmaceuticals, haven't they, largely? How, where do you see it being used in industry? Where do you see Apple's three grand headset being used? What kind of industries, what kind of use cases do you see that happening? I mean, it's hard to tell exactly where it'll go, but I think one interesting use case is, say, real estate. You could go and experience a house and actually walk around it, feel like you're walking around it before you've actually been to experience it. Um, obviously, there's nothing like going to visit a home, but it would save you that initial step of knowing how you felt about it. Uh, one good VR experience I had this year was when Orange um, took me out to France to go to Notre Dame. Now, obviously, the cathedral has been burnt down, so nobody can visit it at the moment. So what they've done in a car park underneath, they built a virtual version of the cathedral, and you walk around this kind of mapped-up thing, and it shows you the history of the cathedral and it shows you how it was built and then what happened with the fire and how they're rebuilding it ahead of the Olympic Games. So things like that, those kind of experiences. And there's one at um, Bath as well, where it kind of, you put on a, an AR headset and you look around the ruins, uh, the Roman ruins, and then it builds them back and takes you back into Roman times and you can actually see what it would have looked like before it became a ruin. So I think those kind of experiences are really, really important for some. Yeah, people. like that. That's like a good use case for architecture and yeah. and stuff like that. And I think when you marry it up with other technologies like digital twins and stuff like that, it suddenly becomes a much broader experience. Virtually walk inside something. Yeah, yeah I can see. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's on Apple and um, other and software vendors and stuff to come up with more experiences that'll use the technology. And maybe maybe there aren't enough yet, but I think with Apple being on board, one thing they're very good at is bringing in developers to work with them. They did it with the iPhone. The reason the iPhone's so popular is the App Store. The first iPhone didn't have an App Store. It wasn't until the second one that. Um, when it came out that they launched the app store and then they opened up the app store to developers and said you guys get on board you develop apps for us they all go through apple's quite tight process and that's been criticized at times and apple take a share of the profits but ultimately the app store has transformed the way we use our phones um i could see something similar happening with with this headset yeah yeah, I'll, I'll buy one. Do you think we'll have like a reality where we can like walk around and see like the earth before it was inhabited by humans? I think that would be cool. Only if we're prepared to wait for the Android version of it, Ricky. <laughs> of course, yeah. You don't want to go full Jurassic Park, Ricky. <laughs> it didn't work out for them. Even if it's virtual, it still slightly terrifies me. Some, something will go wrong. Digital twins are playing a key role in how industries such as construction, 
healthcare, manufacturing, and transport are revolutionizing their processes. In our latest digital report, Tech Informed looks at how digital twins are aiding enterprises in reducing costs, boosting data analytics, and transforming new technological deployments. Journey with us as we speak to industry experts who are pushing the limits of what's possible, testing new products and offerings in a virtual environment like we've never seen before. Visit techinform.com now to read the Digital Twins report and join the future today. Well, I guess we should address the um, robot in the room, AI, which is what everyone's been talking about. All of the predictions that we've received from everybody that we've spoken to is pretty much like 90% AI related. Um, so I wonder if you guys want to just jump in and, and talk about where you see AI going uh, in the next in the next year. I think in terms of generative AI, because there are lots of different types, but like this is the one that's taken off this year, like large language models like um OpenAI, ChatGPT. And I think it's just going to be use cases, use cases, more use cases, companies honing their use cases, looking at how they can use large language models in closed environments where they're not using the public internet, but they're using their own information to sort of train large language models to help iterate things quicker. I think the way AI interacts with everything else is so important and it's what we've seen this year is ChatGPT by kind of um, OpenAI creating a system where people can integrate it with APIs and stuff like that into other tools, it suddenly becomes a much more useful tool itself. Um, and that's where we're going to see a lot of the development in the enterprise sector is how generative AI is applied to other other tools and other systems. And I think what will be most interesting for me is how everyone plays catch up. I mean, Amory mentioned uh, Google and they, they launched Bard earlier this year. And then also um, they've just launched a new model of it called Gemini. And Elon Musk has launched Grok, which was getting criticism over the weekend for being too woke, apparently, uh, which is hilarious. You know, the fact is that we have all of these new tools launching that are trying to play catch up to ChatGPT. Yeah, it's just, it's going to be a huge topic again, because I think everyone is, it's every, every year there seems to be a new tech topic that really dominates. Last year was definitely the year of AI, but I just think it's progressed so quickly that we're going to see that continue this year. Um, and it's hard to predict exactly where it'll go um, because it's like a runaway train at the moment. Yeah, well, so I went to the AI for Good conference in July this year and all the experts there, including the Secretary General of the ITU, who the ITU hosts AI for Good, um, they were all kind of waiting for this to happen. They were anticipating this big boom and for all of us to all of a sudden need to start throwing in the regulations and the laws. So you could feel the excitement when we were there. They were all so excited, but also really hesitant over how it can be used. Uh, it can be used for good of course, for sustainability reasons and poverty and war, which is what the UN want it for, for their SDGs. But also we still have a lot of backtracking to do and reining in. Yeah, there's also like AI, as you mentioned, like AI safety and AI law, AI regulation. Like they're all big areas that will probably just get bigger next year, I would have thought. Well, we have another, we'll have another AI safety summit in 
just under six months and then another one in a year as to whether they'll actually agree, the politicians will actually agree any actions rather than just agree, strike an agreement that says, yes, we're all going to work together on this in a future meeting. Hopefully next one, it won't, the outcome won't just be another meeting. It'll be some actual guidance on how to use AI and how to develop it. Because I think that's what a lot of industry figures are really, really clambering for. Um, whether it be the ones who are giving warnings about the dangers of AI, as Nicole touched upon, or the ones who are really kind of um, like Sam Altman at OpenAI is really pushing the benefits of it. The fact is that it's a tool. It's how people use it. Um, but at the same time, it's probably unlike any tool that we've used before. I'm personally very excited about more use cases in terms of how uh, AI is going to improve our day-to-day -day working lives. There's so many like new tools that are always coming out and developing and getting better and better like really quickly that make really menial or like laborious tasks so much faster and so much easier. And indeed, lots of the people that I've spoken to have spoken how it's going to revolutionize work. And there is obviously concern about what kind of jobs might be at risk. But then also there's a lot of conversation about what kind of jobs are going to be created. So it's kind of like waiting to see how, how it how it happens and how it all falls out. I think a lot of people were afraid at the start of blue collar jobs being at risk, but now it's developed so fast that like where code is kind of almost writing itself, that it's kind of like the techie tech bro jobs that are kind of more at risk than people had first. And our jobs, I was reading a, an interesting news story in the Daily Mirror and I got to the end of it and it said a layer of ChatGPT was used in the editing of this article. And I wouldn't have even, it was only used for the editing um, it read like a normal story because sometimes when journalists or ma magazine companies use ChatGPT to write stuff, it's Americanized. It's always got a conclusion. It reads more like an essay. I can usually tell. But like with this one, you know, it, it read like a normal news article and they've clearly used it just to kind of speed up the editing process. And then they've disclosed the fact that they've used it. And I think that's probably the way forward with that kind of thing. But it's like, as an editor myself, it does make me slightly worried. <laughs> I think that lots of people have those worries and concerns, but at the moment, at least for now, the AI isn't like sentient and isn't really creative. So it gives us more opportunity to focus on the creative parts of our jobs. And that's usually the parts that we enjoy the most anyway. So maybe it takes away that the those feudal like editing parts that you do, but you have more time to research into stories that interest you or like find cool ways of telling stories in different ways that maybe other people aren't doing. So it kind of opens that door for creativity. And and you'll still, you'll still need to check over ChatGPT to make sure it hasn't made something up because it still hallucinates. Does tend to lie. <laughs> Obviously, one of the things we haven't spoken about yet is um, cybersecurity and cyber defense, which is a hot topic at the moment. And Nicole, I know that you've spoken to quite a few people about this subject over the last year. So I wonder if you've got any kind of input for us, what we can expect for 2024 in terms of the cybersecurity world. Um, what can I expect for 2024? I think maybe with the increase of AI again, people will be much more, uh, will need to invest a bit more into cybersecurity because AI and even quantum people may, might be a bit worried, sometimes get a bit worried about that at least. Um, and for many different reasons, I mean, chat phishing emails are going to be harder to spot because they're going to be better written. Um, and also AI will probably be able to attack and send emails to multiple people at once and personalize them 
also deep fakes, also audio deep fakes too. Well, people need to be more hyper aware of that. It's called vishing. The vishing. <laughs> I think you're right about the phishing emails. One thing I never got with old phishing emails is why they were so badly done. You could always pick a phishing email out because it would just be written like somebody who's never... But it, they stay worked. Otherwise, they wouldn't have kept doing this it. This is true. Somebody must have been putting for it. But now, I think, yeah, with, with ChatGPT or other AI software, it's it's they're probably going to be more professional looking. You know, you can take a logo off the internet and really do it. But if somebody can do that quickly through AI, then, yeah, there's a big threat. And I think I think you're right. I think the, the problem for businesses, for enterprises, is making sure there's that investment into cyber defense because quite often it's an area that, while it's super important and you see the consequences if, of a ransomware attack or a data leak, there could be massive fines and massive reputational damages when companies suffer these breaches. And we've seen it throughout the year, um, throughout the years, really, um, companies who have had their reputations harmed by the fact that customer data has leaked. And yet, still, when you speak to CISOs or um, the people who are dealing with security, they say they haven't always got buy-in from their top executives or the support they need to be able to deal with in ever-growing, more diverse landscape of threats because it's not just phishing emails, it's ransomware, it's DDoS attacks, and all of these things have more complexity. They're happening more often, and, yeah, they're getting smarter as well. So, yeah, it's um, scary times, but at the same time, people will come up with technological solutions to defend against them, so it's just about investment and consistency. And hacktivism as well seems to be like the new thing that's like kind of, it's kind of evolving and changing into different forms where they're getting kind of more aggressive and moving more into kind of, it starts off as like a, a with like a, a political aim and then becomes basically ransomware in its own, in its own way. Yeah. Gangs are starting to become more politically motivated, but they need to be careful because that's what happened. There's a big ransomware gang called Conti that was very successful there was a mix of Ukrainian and Russians behind it. And then when the Ukraine war happened, uh, lots of stuff got leaked from the Ukrainian side about the Russians. And it just totally imploded. So uh, the gangs are quite careful to keep it strictly business. But I think, Nicole, would, during your report that you were doing on ransomware, that there are some groups emerging now that are like like Robin Hood gangs. Is, is that the case yes yeah and uh as ricky said hacktivism and maybe with uh, their own political agenda but yeah and uh, and then the other area is um i think like my prediction for for next year just looking at the pattern of ransomware gangs until now they've targeted like big enterprises but i think next year it's going to be more small to medium businesses that that start to become the focus of these gangs because these gangs they're big guys say they're enterprises but they all operate like franchises so they they lease their ransomware software to other people it's a bit like an illicit pyramid scheme um so you've got the big guys at the top but you've got smaller guys at the bottom they just mirror kind of any other kind of enterprise software business um so i think you're going to have the little guys towards the bottom targeting small to medium enterprises that haven't invested in their tech stack, don't have the money, they don't have SOC teams, they don't have a chief cybersecurity officer. Um, it's just four or five people and 
they're just focused on their business. Um, so they're, they're the kind of low-hanging fruit that I think people will go for next year. Like the mafia to me, the way you describe it as the kind of you got a godfather of um, ransomware, and then they let down the they have their capos, and then it goes down to the street level enforcers. Yeah, even, just... even as a sales thing, you, you, you know, you have the the kind of sales strategy where you go for the large enterprises, and you only need one or two, and you're fine for the year. But then there are many more sales businesses that target like smaller companies, but they just need to do more of them to to earn the same amount. And so that's where I think that ransomware is going next year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's smaller and medium companies are finding themselves investing more in their cybersecurity. Uh, I was sat in a talk earlier this year with a care home who had to completely rewire their building for ransomware and invest in a big firewall. Really? For, for a care home? Yeah, there was a company that owned many care homes, so they're they having to rewire. Because uh, well, care homes, are, I guess, are notoriously earn a lot of money so they would maybe be targets and they have a lot of people data as well i guess like a lot of medical data and stuff like that like really private health, health has been a big target this year yeah mm-hmm. well on that delightful note before we wrap things up then does anybody else have any um, other predictions for next year and i wonder what uh the next piece of tech that you guys are looking to purchase might be i've just bought a chromebook a Lenovo Chromebook for my daughter to do her GCSE work on. Excited. <laughs> uh, I just bought myself an air fryer, which is revolutionizing the way I cook. So. Can you air fry mince pies, James? I don't know. I've not tried that yet. I did a really nice Sunday roast on Sunday, if I say so myself, with all in the air fryer. So that was that was very nice. But there is a baking setting. So um, somebody was suggesting that you can make muffins i don't know about mince pies because you need something to kind of shape them as they were going in so um i'm not 100 sure um is that a hint that you want me to make mince pies for the team again this year no, no <laughs> i'm just wondering but do you normally bring some kind of baked good into the office around christmas time? oh i'm looking forward to it yeah i would want to thank you before the christmas party but maybe next week um, if I have time this weekend, I'll I'll make some mince pies again because I do like that mince pie recipe. This has nothing to do with tech. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, because it's such a dark and gloomy day, I need to get myself a sunlight lamp. <laughs> a what? A sunlight lamp that replicates. It's, it shines it's like a UV lamp that shines on your face. And so it really helps people with seasonal depression. Sounds like sounds like a portable sunbed, and I feel like there's cancer involved. I don't know if there is. I don't think it's a UV rays. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, just a nice bright lamp. Nicole's going to come into the new year and just be super tanned. <laughs> just <in> my face. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you for joining us for this bonus episode of TI Talks. And I hope that we haven't scared you too much about the next year, and we all filled you with hope and not doom lots to think about moving on um but does everyone want to say thanks and goodbye thank you thank you <laughs> no <laughs> maybe in a less awkward way <laughs> i just yeah like maybe uh, i'll i'll do it i'd t- like to uh take a second to thank the team first of all um the second one team who worked really hard this year to produce some absolute smashing content um, so I think everyone who's worked for TI, whether it be our internal team or con- external contributors, um, thank you. Please do give yourselves a pat on the back. 
Um, but also, yeah, to all of our readers and listeners, you know, this year we've launched a lot of new podcasts and new content, and it's great to have people engage with that. Um, so thank you very much, and have a happy Christmas, happy holidays, um, if you don't celebrate Christmas, and a great new year. And to listen to any of our other great podcast content, you can visit techinform.com forward slash podcast, and we'll see you on the other side. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>